Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air. Whether you're joining us from your car or a workout or because your program director makes you listen to this podcast, we are so happy to have you here today. I'm Micah Hill, the media editor, and we have the whole team with us today. So I'm very excited to learn some science from all of you. Kurt, Eve, and Pietro, good morning. Good to see all three of you. Good morning, Micah. Great to be here. Good morning. Great to see everyone, and especially you, Micah. Back from a week of vacation in the Caribbean. I have to tell you, I actually am excited to be here. First thing I'm doing back from vacation was looking forward to this. Your pictures look amazing, Pedro, and you have a beautiful family, so it looks like you had a good time. So we are now on the April edition of 2023 uh, into our third season, volume 119, number three. And apart from the selected articles that we're going to talk about today, uh, this journal this month is really packed with a lot of fantastic uh, other material. And so I'm just going to go through that real quick, and then we'll get to the articles we selected. So first, we have a thank you to our reviewers from the editors. And so, Kurt, I know the review process and the scientific quality of our journal is very important to you. And I just wanted to see if you had any additional words to say to our uh, reviewers before we move on. Well, I'm glad I got a chance to say things verbally because an acknowledgement in the journal just isn't sufficient for all the hard work that you all do to review the journal for us. Um, the peer review is the foundation for this journal. We wouldn't be able to do without you. And I think it's exceptionally good for fertility and sterility. So keep up the good work. Tell your friends, recruit more people. And again, a really, really hearty from myself and the editorial staff. Yeah, thank you to all our reviewers for protecting the uh, scientific quality and integrity of the journal and elevating it. We appreciate that time that you give to uh, the journal for free. Thank you so much. There's also a very nice views and reviews that's led by Robert Norman, IVM, so in vitro maturation for IVF, an idea whose time has come. Gilcrease lays out the article of the physiologic basis for the application of IBM. Uh, Vong, who, if you haven't been following, has done some really nice um, RCTs out of Vietnam, not just out of this program on IBM or this topic of IBM, but on several. And so he talks about their experience using IVM to decrease OHSS in high responders, PCOS. And the last article comes from Cadenas and others that have been very involved with the fertility preservation side of research. And this article really lays out five or six nice uh, physiologic pieces that we still need to work out to have of ideal IVM. And it's really a nice piece if you're a fellow and just want to learn through the processes of what uh, scientifically they're trying to overcome as we get better and better at, at using IVM. So has the time come for uh, IVM? I still don't know. I still think it's a little bit niche. We have way to avoid OHSS that I think are better. Perhaps in some cancer patients, this will be ideal, but uh, certainly the science continues to grow on this. And, and this outlines this very nice and some very educational pieces. Uh, the fertile battles that uh, talk about the FIGO classification for ovulatory disorders. This is read by, uh, led by Rick Legro. There's a very nice pro and con debate. Uh, I'll just leave you my two cents. If we take something that's pretty simple and make it into a more complicated system, then we probably haven't done ourselves any favor. But that's my two cents. Read it. See what you think. And the last one is an Inklings from uh, Erica Marsh and uh, some of our other editors uh, talking about National Infertility Awareness Week, which will be occurring towards the end of April, just before Mother's Day. And they do a nice job of talking about uh, infertility awareness, but specifically from minorities who have increased disparities and looking at it from it through that lens. So it's a very nice inklings from that team. So a lot of stuff at the front of the journal, very, very high yield. I encourage you to read that. We're going to dive right now into our seminal article, which we hope to have a good discussion on. Eve, I'm going to hand it over to you. What was the seminal article and what were your thoughts about it? Thanks, Micah. This month's seminal article is one that we should all read. It is called Malpractice Litigation Surrounding In Vitro Fertilization in the United States, a Legal Literature Review. And this was written by Jeremy Applebaum with senior author Kate O'Neill from the University of Pennsylvania. 
As someone who practices in the field and occasionally has done some expert witness testimony, I think it's important to understand the current legal climate and areas of vulnerability, both in our individual and our collective practices. The study design is unique to medical literature. The authors queried legal databases, Nexus Uni, Westlaw, and Court Listener to collect records from malpractice litigations over the last 30 years that involved IVF. It is important to note that they were only able to collect cases that went to trial and not any that were settled outside of the courtroom. And I would add that only a small fraction of cases actually make it to trial. So it's important to note that what follows is a description of the types of cases that could not be settled before trial. I would say the more serious issues. There were 447 cases that were identified. 53 of these involved malpractice and IVF, and we're going to focus on those 53. 24 involved embryology errors. 11 were specifically involving PGT. Six were related to medical or surgical complications from ART, things like OHSS. Three were due to alleged misrepresentation of IVF outcomes by clinics. Two were due to claims of incorrect or problematic medical eligibility screening, so things like surrogacy. Two were due to HIPAA breaches, and one was due to discrimination. Secondary claims were things like negligence, breach of contract, lack of informed consent, and emotional distress. 55% were decided in favor of the defending IVF provider or clinic. 25% were decided in favor of the plaintiff, and 20% of these cases are still ongoing and have not yet been decided. Compensation has ranged from $4,000 to $14 million, though that larger sum was for a series of cases that were tried together and was awarded to six separate plaintiffs. The case was not actually a class action, as stated in the manuscript. The judgments range from three to seven million per plaintiff. The authors go through the details of several of these key cases and they group them by category. In the embryology category, there were cases where the wrong gametes were used or the wrong embryo was transferred and the woman gave birth to a baby derived from another couple's embryo. Like I said, the $14 million judgment was for an alleged cryostorage tank accident. Other cases had to do with embryo discard. In the reflections piece for this article, written by Seagal Klepstein and Judith Dar, they caution that in a post-Roe world, we are ripe for additional litigation. It leaves the door wide open for ascribing personhood to embryos, and embryo damage or destruction may carry more significance and hence more financial reward. In the genetic category, complaints had to do with children being born with genetic disease, either because carrier screening was not offered, PGT was inaccurate, or the wrong embryo was transferred. Misdiagnosis encompassed issues such as failure to diagnose malignancy in pelvic masses during IVF or incorrect infectious disease screening results. Misrepresentation of IVF outcomes involves claims that IVF clinics promoted false success rates. Medical eligibility screening issues were related to the use of a GC with a history of severe preeclampsia in her own pregnancy and then in her surrogacy pregnancy, which led to a 25-week delivery and death of the neonate at 21 days of life. The discrimination case was brought forth by a patient who was denied IVF because she was single, and this was found to violate a Michigan-specific civil rights law. In summary, what we do carries a huge amount of risk and liability, and I think all of our listeners can relate to each of these cases. If not envision similar scenarios or nightmares in their own practices. One point that I want to make, and this is from personal experience as an expert witness in one of the trials with a large monetary verdict, while winning a case might be seen as a personal victory, the downstream implications for the field will ultimately affect us all. As an expert witness, we have a duty to tell the truth, to eliminate theatrics, and to not exaggerate the significance of what was lost. I'm going to open this up for discussion because I know I just flew through these cases, but I do think that there's a lot to discuss here. I want to point out that I was taken aback by how low the number was. I don't know if you guys felt similarly. Between 1990s and 2000, in the 2020s, there were only 53 malpractice cases that actually made it to trial. In my mind, I thought that number would be higher, but I guess this actually gives us a sense of how much litigation is actually happening within our field. The other important point that I saw in the article was that 50% of the malpractice suits were related to embryology errors or, or things happening in the embryology lab. 
you know, clinically, we all talk about that the magic happens in the embryology lab. We're just making dosing decisions and, and stepping on a pedal to remove eggs. But it also seems like the liability is also happening in the embryology lab. Micah, Kurt, what do you think? Yeah, Pietro, you've rediscovered bias again. We all remember the, the the small amount of cases that get huge publicity, but they have huge implications. I think the wonderful aspect of this article is that, well, I agree with you, the numbers are small. We should be aware of these suits and we should be aware of where we should be paying attention to. I, th I think I divided it into two errors. That there's not a lot we can do about the implications post-Roe. I mean, obviously, we should be advocates and, and fight against personhoods, but it really the issue is don't be so darn busy that you make mistakes by putting the wrong gametes in or have faulty laboratory techniques or or problems with storage and transfer. I mean, those those are malpractice. So I would caution against those. The ones that worry me are the ones about personhood and genetics and, you know, can you assure a healthy baby? And those are more societal ethical problems because nothing we do is 100%. There's also some easy unforced error ones on here, right? Just confidentiality. Don't talk about a patient specifically on the t on television. That kind of seems at face value something that we all know we shouldn't do. And don't disclose information about a credit card payment to a an ex husband over the phone um, that's related to IVF. That also kind of seems like an unforced error. But I agree with you, Kurt. There's definitely some stuff here that is avoidable and where we should really spend most of our attention trying to risk reduce. Yeah, I think the point about the embryology lab is is key. And I think that the cryo storage issues, like as we have more and more embryos that are in cryo storage, that becomes an increasing liability there. So I think that's probably the biggest that 14 million was a cryo storage um, alleged tank failure. You know, there were live births that were actually from those embryos that were kept in the tank. So there is a lot of debate and a lot of nuance as to whether or not that really was a tank failure or a tank malfunction. In terms of the medical stuff, I think the key message here is the same in all malpractice suits. If you spend a little bit more time documenting the patient's desires or what you actually told the patient or what you promised, you go a long way to defending these these um, malpractice suits or medical liability suits. It's the um, that gray area that's left for a jury to make the decision for you on what you said or what you promised or what the statistics are. And you, you certainly don't want that. Yeah, but Kurt, I'm going to push back a little bit from the expert witness side here that, you know, if you have a case where material was, you know, allegedly lost or damaged, like an embryo or like a frozen egg, and your family's complete, you've had a vasectomy, you're not planning on using that biologic material, why are you suing for three and a half million dollars? And why is there an REI defending that case? Like, I think that's egregious and that needs to be, we need to have a higher code of ethics there. I agree. If you've got an REI who's misrepresenting the damages of a frozen gamete, that's horrible for our field. I can't understand why someone would do that. And if you think about it, if you're practicing good medicine and you have someone not an REI trying to be on the plaintiff side, you, you've got a lot of credibility. But if you've got a misspeaking REI that's in it for just for the self-interest and the money, that's just horrible. All right. Great discussion. I, I was sobered to read it and then to hear Eves, but thank you, Pietro, for at least putting a little bit of a positive spin on it. I appreciate that. So a good article. There's a lot there to to, to digest. Kurt, we're going to move on to you. We're getting to some original research now into andrology first. Yeah, we're going to stay high level with this. This is a well-needed and timely article. Uh, this is Conception After Surgical Sperm Retrieval is the running title. The full title is Reproductive Outcomes Following Surgical Sperm Retrieval in Couples with Male Factor Subfertility, a 10-Year Retrospective National Cohort. Nicely done by Jonathan Lewis and Ethia Yasmin out of the University College London Hospitals in the UK. So this is a really important question, and it's, it's a question that, that I think we face every day in our practice. What is the best sperm for ICSI, especially if you're going to talk about whether it's surgically extracted sperm, which is the main focus for this? Should you freeze it first? Does it have to be fresh? Do we have to time our cycles? Does it matter where you retrieve it? Certainly, it's easier to retrieve it from the epididymis than it is from the testes. You know, these are practical questions that we have a lot of literature on, but very rarely do we have a very large study like this that goes all the way to live birth. So 
The design of this is pretty simple. This is a national cohort using the UK Human Fertilization and Embryo Authority, including all ICSI cycles performed in the UK over a 10-year period. So good database. Uh, it looks at all known donor ICSI. It's perhaps a little bit old, but you have to do it in the study from 2008 to 2017. And it's uh, stratified by where they got the sperm. So cutting to the chase, this is huge numbers. They're talking about over 200,000 ICSI cycles, including just under 200,000 ejaculated sperm. But you have a really good comparison, about 6,000 cases using epididymal sperm and around 9,000 cases using testicular sperm. So I'll, I'll quiz you guys. What do you think? Is it better to use fresh sperm or frozen sperm? We prefer fresh if it's testi- you know if it's like a testicular biopsy and there's few sperm. But that's you know maybe those are uh, actually I'll get back to that at the end for a question for you, Kurt. But in general, we prefer fresh for you know the testicular if possible. Yeah, I would say in general we use frozen, um, and I think that's the right answer. But I do think that there are nuanced cases that probably cannot be identified in a large-scale population study, like in non-obstructive azospermia, where we have very few sperm, we prefer fresh. So being a, being a Cornell Fellowship person, I'll tell you, I only ever saw fresh Tessie sperm used. I never saw frozen sperm used. Shout out Peter Schlegel. <laughs> so these are, these are great dogma because it's, it's basically where we trained. And it looks like this study, if you believe it's authoritative, is basically saying it really doesn't matter. So uh, basically, the outcomes were pretty similar, whether used um, fresh or frozen sperm, whether from ejaculated sperm, by the way, which was a, a second analysis in the study, or using frozen sperm from uh, surgically obtained. So that's the number one lesson. So there is subtlety, which I'll get to in a second. It's certainly not one size fits all, but you know, you don't have to coordinate all your cycles to be fresh, but at the same token, there might be advantages too. So the next question though, is where do you get the sperm? If we've just decided that surgical sperm works, and by the way, the, the success rates are pretty good. The ejaculated sperm in this study gave a live birth rate around 28.5%, the epididymal sperm around 30%, and the testicular right in the middle around 29%. By the way, we're not trying to say that uh, surgically derived sperm gives you a higher pregnancy rate than ejaculated sperm, but it is comforting that the, all the success rates are about the same. So the next question is, where do you get the sperm? And I learned that it, well, many people think, and I, that's what I learned, that what matters is the DNA fragmentation is more as you get farther away from the testis, more time for reactive oxygen species, more time for, if you will, unpackaging of the supposedly correctly packaged DNA in the sperm. So theoretically, you would say that testicular sperm, assuming all all else is equal, should be better because it has less DNA fragmentation. The answer to this study was the opposite. It looked like epididymal sperm gave you higher success rate than testicular sperm. That is one of the statistical significant findings in the study, which opens up a lot of questions because sometimes you don't have a choice. But if you do have a choice, it does look like that epididymal sperm might be better. It makes me wonder, is it just easier to extract or you're getting more sperm to choose from? But anyway, we'll leave this the subtlety to, to this finding. Or confounding by indication, maybe, with you know exactly with where you're going. Obstructive, non-obstructive azospermia. And- right. That both of you are correct. That is the big problem with the study. It answered some very important high-level questions. Um, but it, it, this is a registry data that has some of the data protected. So therefore, they couldn't get the individual patient data to control for things like female infertility and obstructive azospermia versus non-obstructive azospermia. So the bottom line from both the reflection and the authors is correct in that they're answering a large question, but they all tip their hats to saying, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have individual medicine. That doesn't mean that there's not other factors here that will make a difference on how you choose to um, obtain your sperm, whether you freeze it or not. But nice reassuring study on the big level questions, top level questions. uh, And then we can still argue and debate and publish in fertility and sterility about the subtlety. So well said as always, Kurt. Kurt, you've kind of alluded to it, but you know, is it possible when you have a massive population study like this, that maybe those half a percent or you know, 0.1 of 1% of males that really have severe non-obstructive azospermia, and you're maybe only going to get six to 10 sperm and half of them won't be swimming. And is it possible that you just lose those cases when you have so many that you don't find any statistical difference when you overall just start lumping these into these massive categories of tens of thousands of people? Yeah, it's very possible. I mean, the advantage of large numbers is you can find 
statistical significance at a smaller number, bigger sample size. But when you start lumping everyone together to get these normals, there's a lot of subpopulations that get just buried in the data. And you can't, really can't answer the specific question, like you were saying, Micah, like, what about if they only had less than 20 sperm? You know, then if that's the case, maybe there is a difference on fresh versus frozen, or there is a difference between, you know, where you got the sperm. Again, reiterate the point, we're going to argue about specifics, but I'm glad we see a high level study that goes to live birth with something that's commonly done in our field that can be reassuring to us. Yeah. And just a plug for frozen sperm. I mean, I think that the big advantage of using frozen sperm is that you're not necessarily subjecting a woman to ovarian stimulation and you have some time to make decisions once you know whether or not sperm are retrieved. And so I think that the idea of trying to coordinate so many of these fresh, like while commendable, I think it it unnecessarily puts women through a lot of treatment that they may not otherwise need. Unless nothing survives the thaw on the back end when you go back and stimulate them, then then you're, you know, worse off. A lot of it is predictable though, right? Like in your cases where you have, at least in our center, cases where we suspect that numbers are going to be very, very low, like non-obstructive, high FSH, Kleinfelters, we will plan to do those a priori fresh, but certainly obstructive cases, we do all of those frozen and in advance. Again, to that point, very rarely are we surprised, but it really allows for much more coordination and timing with overall excellent results. Yeah. Let, let me finish this conversation with, again, we're talking about the weeds. Let's go back, back big here for a second. ICSI and sperm ex surgical extraction has just changed reproduction. These are men that would never have gotten pregnant before. And it amazes me that something like 28% of these people can have a live birth, even though we've bypassed so much biology spermatogenesis, spermiogenesis, fertilization. It just, just come on, we all do this for a living. Let's think about this. this. This should amaze you that this works so well. They can't see my smile through the podcast, but I could not agree more. I think sometimes we take for granted what we do. Um, and I think we can all relate to this, but I had a patient in my office the other day who was 49. She froze her eggs when she was 39. Uh, she had one embryo. We transferred it. She was released to her OB at 10 weeks. And she just stood there in tears, so grateful. Like, you changed my life, grateful. And we do. We do amazing things every day. And I think it is not often that we take the time to pause and reflect over what we do. All right. How's that for a segue? Who's next? All right. I like it. And now we're going to move on to me. We have an article going on to assisted reproduction. And I just want to get my uh, shout out of the month to Ricardo Lorette de Mola. So Ricardo has been working with us on trying to get some of our events uh, live, both on site and uh, virtually uh, with our Spanish speaking colleagues around the globe. And so we uh, for the first time, had a Spanish uh, journal club in a few years just last week. So if you speak Spanish and you'd like to listen to that, it was a great discussion on endometriosis from surgical experts throughout um, Central and South America. So thank you, Ricardo, for that. Uh, I'm moving on to ART, and this is a meta-analysis that's looking at progesterone supplementation in natural cycle frozen embryo transfers. And this is a meta-analysis done by people out of China, led by authors Zhang and Zhang. And they were able to find uh, four randomized controlled trials, three of which were in their primary analysis. So these are natural cycles, although they were supplemented with progesterone. And so obviously when you get from between natural and program cycles, there's going to be some uh, gray areas. Some people will use HCG triggers, some will use progesterone. But the idea being with natural, mainly that you have a, a corpus luteum that's functioning. So in these three studies that were included, uh, they primarily used uh, vaginal progesterone at different doses from 100 to 400 a day. They started at different times. Uh, one of the studies started three days after an LH surge. One of them started on the day of embryo transfer, which could have been day two, three, four, five, or six or seven. So whichever day they got the embryo transfer, that's the day they started the progesterone. So it varied between the uh, the studies. Overall, they had about a thousand patients uh, between these randomized controlled trials. When they looked at their primary outcome of live birth using vaginal progesterone to supplement a natural cycle, uh, they did find an advantage uh, with an odds ratio of 1.42, and it did not cross the null. And two of those three studies individually found statistical significance. 
their estimations of the effect size were very similar, 1.46 and 1.42 between those two large studies. And so the statistical heterogeneity uh, from all of these comparisons was 0% because it was fairly similar between the three trials. So uh, the authors conclude that uh, vaginal progesterone supplementation may be helpful in patients that have uh, natural cycle, having a natural cycle FET. So I want to talk about a few of the things that I liked about this study first. First of all, they only used uh, randomized controlled trials. So compared to the prior meta-analyses that are out there, uh, those other studies have combined observational cohort data uh, with RCTs. And obviously the problem with that is in your observational data, uh, you're going to have various biases in those uh, papers. You hope that those authors are adjusting for that with regression models or some sort of other adjustments to account for that potential confounding. When you're doing a meta-analysis and all you have is the main output of the raw data going into your model, uh, you can't adjust for that confounding within that specific trial. And so uh, by doing a meta-analysis, you're really just compounding bias risk with observational data, unless you're doing meta-regression or individual patient meta-analysis. So that was the first thing they did that was better than prior studies. Uh, they registered their meta-analysis prospectively on Prospero. So I think that's something that every meta-analysis or systematic review person should do. Uh, just like an RCT, say what you're going to do beforehand so that it's clear that you're following your A priori plan. And then they excluded one paper that they determined to be at high risk of bias. Now, this one is interesting because this is actually a large paper that found no difference. So it's the only one that found no difference. They did exclude it because it was registered 10 years after it was published. So obviously, very late retrospective registration of that RCT. So I, I thought it was interesting that they excluded it. I would have liked to have seen them do a sensitivity analysis with that paper in because the effect size that we're finding here and the p-values are very close to the null. And I think one null study being included probably would have flipped the, the findings. So those were the strengths, and I was overall happy to see that. I'll just talk about what I struggled with. You know, do I think we need to use progesterone? Do I think this answers that question in natural cycle IVF? Now, the first of all, and the authors admit this, there's suboptimal integrity in the three studies that they included. They did a very nice Cochrane review of the biases, and they're pretty high on these studies. There's not uh, allocation concealment. There's not blinding. Uh, they're not all clear on how they did the randomization sequences. There's a lot of clinical heterogeneity. Again, as I said, some one of the studies transferred uh, started progesterone on day two, three, four, five, six, or seven, depending upon uh, the day of how old the embryo was for the transfer. Um, they all did use vaginal progesterone, though, so that was good. One of them used an HCG trigger. So if you're using an HCG trigger plus progesterone, are, are we still on a modified? Are we still just a natural cycle? Or are we now pretty heavily modifying it with two additional drugs? Um, and the other thing that we've talked about before on this um, concept, but in both of these studies that drove these findings, the control group had very low live birth rates, 20%. So I think if I came to you and said, your control group's going to have 20%, uh, and then, you know, their experimental group had 30%. We've been 30% for an FET in most of our programs. I think we'd say that's pretty low. We might want 45, 50%. So when your control group and the two studies that drive the findings are unexplicably low, maybe that's because these were slow vits. And so a lot of these were slow vits. So does that apply to us? These were day two, three, four transfers. Does that apply to us? So maybe these things don't. And then the one thing I wanted to talk to Pietro about specifically, because I know uh, you do a lot of these where you trained, all of these studies use only LH to determine when to time the frozen embryo transfer. And in the most case, they're actually just, um, they were home LH tests. So they're not even blood tests. So they're going on a home LH surge being positive and they're not checking progesterones. Could it just be that by starting progesterone, if you actually mistimed it on a home ovulation predictor test, the progesterone supplementation maybe helps you overcome the fact that you mistimed the transfer. So as opposed to being a better treatment, uh, you could overcome that by just measuring progesterone and making sure your timing's right. So I wonder if that's what drove the results, that they didn't measure progesterone in any of these source studies. So I'm curious to Pietro's thoughts and, and others on that. Yeah, I'll tell you from the Cornell and now Boston IVF experience where we've done greater than 50% of our cycles are natural FET transfers. We measured LH and progesterone in both centers. And the reason is you see sometimes LH is starting to rise and you think that's the surge, but you check the progesterone, it's negative check the progesterone the next day, it's still negative. And then you check the progesterone again, you've actually caught maybe the peak or the, the, the descending arc of the LH curve, and now the progesterone's positive. And you could really mess up the timing there. There's a 48 swing that you could get wrong. And exactly like you said, Micah, the progesterone probably is just making up for some of that and kind of 
acting as a safety net and a floor for for some programs who aren't checking progesterones. So I check them mostly because that's how I've been trained, but I think it makes good intuitive sense to me that if you're going to be checking one, you should be checking the other when making some of these decisions. Yeah, we check progesterones as well. And I think that we do it a little bit differently. We check daily progesterones. And then once the progesterone crosses five is when we time embryo transfer to three days later. And it usually, I would say in like 95% of cases, it works out to home LH kit plus uh, six for timing of transfer. But there are these cases where it's off and we do see positive pregnancies and we kind of pat ourselves on the back thinking, aha, we like caught that where it wouldn't have been caught by an LH kit. Where I really struggle with this is progesterone supplementation, what to use, when to start it on these natural cycles or even the modified natural. And I will say after having written that views and reviews, I think just from a terminology standpoint, natural is the corpus luteum, let's call it happening unassisted or happening naturally. And a modified natural is where you trigger with HCG and you modify the natural cycle by adding an ovulation trigger. And so that tends to be the distinction between the two. But especially in the triggered cycles, do you start progesterone 36 hours later? Do you start progesterone three days post, you know, what would have been LH surge or three days post trigger? Do you start progesterone after embryo transfer? I think that's the part of this study that left me very unsatisfied is a meta-analysis is you get out what you put in and none of the studies that were included in this meta-analysis compared progesterone supplementation at, at different times. So Pietro, I'm actually curious to hear what have you done and how do you manage progesterone supplementation in your natural or modified natural cycles? Eve, I appreciate you pointing out that views and reviews because I think the terminology matters here and there's a lot of words being thrown around and what is natural, what is modified natural. I would even argue that if you're adding progesterone to the luteal phase, that's a modified natural. If you're being a real purist, a natural cycle is let the patient ovulate, let the patient make its own progesterone and time your embryo transfer based on what the, the natural cycle is doing. At Boston IVF, when we do modified natural cycles, we're talking about either using some kind of ovulation induction agent or using a trigger commonly just to help coordination with the lab. And when we use a trigger, we typically start the progesterone and we do endometrin 100 milligrams BID. We do that on the fourth day after the HCG trigger. And we commonly use Ophidril as our trigger. What do you think about the use of natural cycle in defining this? Because obviously we know how you feel in general about the use of natural or not natural. Should we be calling these ovulatory cycles and then just say what they are instead of trying to come up with all these things and every, every site has different terminology to what those mean? To me, this is a modified natural cycle. I'm inducing ovulation with an ovulation induction agent and I'm using a trigger and I'm using progesterone. This is not a natural cycle. I think if you're being a real purist, let the patient ovulate, let the patient surge on their own, and don't support it with progesterone. Medically assisted versus unassisted. There you go. Spontaneous. No. Ooh, Kurt. Obviously, the terminology isn't great here. I I object to the natural cycle compared to IVF because that assumes everything we do is unnatural. It is unphysiologic, but, you know, the connotation of of unnatural is something I I prefer not to um, go there. This is different, I guess. It is a natural cycle. I prefer to say a spontaneous cycle or a normal cycle, but I'm not sure I have the same feelings on this one. But I do have a feeling on this topic here, right? So we are in the, for lack of a better word, the infancy of natural cycles, even though I just used the word, and we're still learning. So I think that this study, as well as you described it, Micah, this meta-analysis is really not going to help me all that much because the evolution of how we do this is still happening. And an old trial that's probably biased by publication bias, right? You wouldn't have got your paper published if, it, if you didn't have a positive result is just, I'm not, I'm still not sure that that's going to help. Think of it this way. There probably are a small amount of cases you can help by giving progesterone in a normal cycle, right? There are some people that progesterone seems to work in, in some cycles, but really we're trying to get it back to what would be normal. So how can we say that progesterone is better? than a normal cycle. So statistically and methodologically, this is kind of difficult here. So I think my take on this is let's all learn from what we're doing and figure out what the right way to do this is. But I still find it hard to believe that progesterone is better than nature. 
My other go-to person for all things luteal phase is Kate Devine at Shady Grove, who's obviously done some RCTs looking at luteal phase support and I think is helping with the NAPRO trial. And she also has some doubts about whether, you know, these findings represent what we're we're doing now. She did say the one caveat, she's heard some data from Sarah Berger and Heather Huddleston about uh, older patients maybe having lower quality corpus luteums and not ad as adequate of progesterone. So, you know, again, Kurt, like you're saying, we're at the infancy of this, um, and maybe there's some patients that we have to discover that benefit from the progesterone. They didn't give numbers needed to treat in this meta-analysis, but it's roughly somewhere between 10 and 15 patients. And I wonder if based on what Pietro is saying, again, that's just one in 10, one or 15, you miss the the surge and the progesterone rescues that for you. Um, that was That was my main... But if it's one in 15 people that we're actually helping because there is something wrong with their natural yeah. cycle, that's really hard to prove that it works in a randomized trial is my point, yes. which is mm -hmm. why I doubt some of the yep. validity of these earlier trials that are put in the meta-analysis. Well, but going back to the timing of progesterone onset, and so if you're missing the LH surge and you're supplementing with progesterone and you're starting your progesterone supplementation four days after HCG trigger four days after your LH surge, like that's not going to compensate for, that's going to be more dyssynchrony than synchrony. I'm going to sound like a, a broken record here, but I'm going to go back to the concept of the window of implantation not being a window and it being a patio. And I think we have a much more permissive number of hours than we all think we have to be able to put an embryo into the right endometrium. We had this discussion on the fellows chat that still persists after we've all graduated. And the range of programs transferring embryos at 108 hours all the way up to 134 hours was vast. And they I still do relatively well. Yeah. Which is what we said. We've been taught in the textbooks that it's wide. I think it's been the ERA testing and, and the molecular testing that's made us think it's more narrow without really knowing that for sure. All right, we spent enough time on that one. So another great paper. Pietro, thank you for letting me take that one. Pietro, we're going to head over to epidemiology now where you have the next two papers. We're going to start with breastfeeding and adenomyosis. Yeah, you probably weren't expecting to talk about breastfeeding this morning on the podcast, but here we are. This is actually a, a really cool paper from the University of Michigan, uh, first author Dr. Mandy Hall, entitled Breastfeeding History and Adenomyosis Risk Using a Novel Case Control Study Design. And Kurt, you better be prepared because I'm going to be asking you all about this methodology. So we're familiar with what adenomyosis is. However, our understanding of its etiology is a bit trickier. We know that estrogen is a central part of the disease pathogenesis, the presence of a hyperestrogenic state initiates what we all know to be endometrial proliferation, but also initiates inflammation and then eventually invagination into the myometrium. And because breastfeeding induces a hypoestrogenic state that suppresses ovulation, it's thought that breastfeeding may actually decrease the risk of adenomyosis and that there may be a dose effect. The more breastfeeding, the more protective. Proving this, however, is kind of tricky. There have only been two studies that have examined this before, and they've actually had opposite results. And as we all know, adenomyosis has historically been diagnosed through the examination of the actual uterus after hysterectomy. So as such, hysterectomy controls are commonly selected for comparison. And although hysterectomy controls are confirmed to not have adenomyosis and are similar to cases in that they had an indication for hysterectomy, they're not selected from that underlying population that gave rise to the cases. And conversely, a control group comprising randomly selected individuals from the underlying source population would allow for controls to represent the frequency of exposures in the population that gave rise to cases. But there's probably differences in measured and unmeasured factors between cases and population controls based on their willingness to undergo hysterectomy that may be introducing some confounding. So the purpose of this present study was to investigate this association between breastfeeding history and adenomyosis, but using kind of a novel approach using two control groups. So they did this by looking at women between the ages of 18 and 59 who are receiving care at Kaiser Permanente in Washington State. In all, the cases had pathologic confirmed adenomyosis on a hysterectomy specimen. The study consisted of two control groups. One were hysterectomy patients without adenomyosis who were undergoing hysterectomy for benign disease and population controls with an intact uterus and without a history of adenomyosis. These were selected at random from a health plan database and frequency matched to cases by a five-year age group. Both cases and controls underwent kind of something unique and I think red flaggy here, but they underwent uh, structured in-person interviews that asked about a range of lifestyle behaviors, medical history, pregnancy history, but focused primarily on their breastfeeding history and their recollection of what 
breastfeeding was like for them potentially many decades ago now. So I'm red flagging this for recall bias, but bravo for having to reach out to all these cases and controls and conducting in-person interviews to collect some of this data. It sounds like a heavy lift. All of the data that they collected was used to build a multivariable logistic regression and compared cases to each control group separately and adjusted for things that you would want to control for, like age and parity, whatnot. Several appropriate sensitivity analyses were also done, looking at gravidity versus parity, BMI at younger ages versus current BMI, the duration of lactational amenorrhea, and their report of exclusively breastfeeding during the time that they were breastfeeding instead of supplementing. And here's kind of the big takeaway of the study. So a history of ever breastfeeding was pretty common. 85% of the cases, 88% of the hysterectomy controls, and 91% of the population controls. So a lot of breastfeeding happening. The authors observed that the participants who had ever breastfed an infant had a 30% decrease odds of adenomyosis compared to cases with hysterectomy. However, this was a non-significant finding as the confidence interval crossed the null. Using the population controls, the association was even stronger in magnitude with ever breastfeeding, with a 40% decreased odds of adenomyosis. This confidence interval was a little shorter, but touched one. Now, the significant finding of the study was that regarding lifetime months of breastfeeding, they observed a 40% decreased odds of adenomyosis with greater than 12 months of lifetime breastfeeding compared to less than three months. And this was an odds ratio of 0.6 that was statistically significant. So the major takeaway for me is breastfeeding for over a year cumulatively, not a single event episode of breastfeeding for a year, was associated with a decreased risk of adenomyosis. And the magnitude of the association was stronger with increasing lifetime breastfeeding duration. You know, there's good biologic plausibility for this finding. We know that hyperestrogenic states promote endometrial basalis proliferation, tissue microtrauma, and this eventually leads to what we know as adenomyosis, and that the low estrogen environment during breastfeeding should be protective. And in this study, it was in a dose-dependent way, which is always nice for shoring up biologic plausibility. The more breastfeeding, the more uh, risk reduction you saw. Now, being that the focus of the study was this kind of novel two-pronged control group, I wanted to ask Kurt what you think about using controls who have had hysterectomy for benign disease and then a population control with an intact uterus who never had a diagnosis of adenomyosis, which you could only make with a uterus specimen. Kurt, what do you think about that? Does that seem clean to you? Is this clever or is it just introducing a little bit more confounding in our result? No, I think it's right to use two control groups because you're never sure one is Correct. I mean, you, this is epidemiology is all about sampling, right? You you can't see everybody, so you can't be sure that either one of your samples for controls is perfect. So it's better to do it both ways, share the data, and let us pontificate on a podcast on which one is better. Um, so I applaud that there's more than one way of doing things. I'm not sure which is a better control group. I think that you know you could make pros and cons to each one. I like the population better as a as my own bias, to use that word on purpose, because I, I think there's more bias in people that come to the health system than we think. But anyway, it still let this data flow over you. You know, this is basically giving you a better understanding of the process. And by having multiple comparisons and a dose response, it makes their finding much more convincing than if they just picked one of them and presented it. Yeah, I 100% agreed with that. And I the fact that the you know the effect size or the point estimate was similar between those two even though the confidence interval obviously in the bigger one got tighter when multiple sub-analyses show similar estimates of effect, you know, that to me that continues the reassuring part of it. And I like that they chopped up their data and and were critical of it in that way. Yeah, I like this as a nice epidemiologic demonstration of how you can do a good study. It's not just one analysis and it finds something or it doesn't. It really is going about this in a thoughtful way with multiple analyses. And then again, presenting them all. Don't censor your own data. You know, this isn't going to change the way we practice, but it's fun to see this in fertility and sterility because it does make you think it does show that there's some good research out there that does touch reproduction. That's not just simply how you stimulate somebody for IVF. Yeah, I, I really liked it. And I really liked the study design of starting with adenomyosis and then working backwards from there. Um, my only caution with it is I do feel like there is this insane amount of pressure on women to breastfeed. And I don't want to see this adding to that insane amount of pressure. So now we have like infant well-being, claims of allergy reduction in asthma, intelligence, and now adenomyosis. So like 
You're right. That one just flips the boat now. If you, if, you know, if you weren't convinced of the other ones, clearly the, the risk of adenomyosis is going to tip the scales. So that's my only word of caution with this is like, how much more guilt can we lay on women who aren't able to breastfeed for various reasons? Now they're going to be at higher risk of adenomyosis. All right. And Pietro, we're staying with you still on Epi. Kurt, we gave you a month off of uh, Epi studies, it looks like. So Pietro, you're back again. You know, this this next paper is a pretty cool one. Um, I'm going to start off with a question for the audience here. Is anyone familiar with area deprivation index? What about the concept of neighborhood disadvantage? I'll be honest, these are two concepts I was not familiar with, but if you continue listening for the next few minutes, you too will be familiar with the concept. An area deprivation index is a composite index that approximates a community's social condition and relative socioeconomic position, providing a percentile of disadvantage on a national level with the highest scores representing neighborhoods with the highest levels of deprivation. This is all based on US census data. The concept of neighborhood disadvantage is not a new concept and has been shown to be associated with increasing rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hospital readmission, and even all-cause mortality. But could this concept of neighborhood disadvantage be a useful one to apply to reproductive medicine, specifically markers of ovarian reserve? Well, this group from WashU used data from the Lifestyle and Ovarian Reserve Cohort Study, which was conducted from 2014 to 2018, and it enrolled women 18 to 44 years old with regular cycles and had them complete demographic and lifestyle questionnaires in addition to collecting AFC and AMH data. They took this historical cohort and categorized it into quartiles of neighborhood disadvantage based on their ADI, their Area Deprivation Index, and stratified them on normal versus elevated BMI cutoffs given that there has been some data suggesting that obesity modulates AMH levels. They performed linear regression and adjusted for age, race, and smoking status. In total, 193 women were included. The median age was 31, 63% of them are white, and 60% of the participants resided in census area blocks that represented anywhere from the 2nd through the 99th percentile of neighborhood disadvantage. So a nice wide sampling of a cohort here in St. Louis. So after adjusting for age, race, and smoking status, women with overweight and obesity who lived in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods had lower AFC scores compared with those living in less disadvantaged neighborhoods. However, this difference was non-significant. The same was also true for the normal to underweight BMI groups. But what about seromarkers for ovarian reserve like AMH? Women with overweight or obesity living in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods had significantly lower AMH levels after the adjustment for age, race, and smoking status compared to those living in the least disadvantaged neighborhoods. Among women with normal weight or underweight, there was no difference in AMH levels based on the neighborhood of residence. So the take-home message here is that living in a disadvantaged neighborhood is associated with reduced AMH concentration, but only in women with overweight or obesity. This finding implies that some of the negative effects of socioeconomic deprivation, which could include things like stress, environmental toxins, poor diet, or even micronutrient status, had more of an impact on the ovaries of women with overweight or obesity. The ovarian reserve of women with overweight or obesity may be more susceptible to the damage through these factors than that of women with normal weight, as suggested by the authors. Alternatively, it's possible that factors leading to obesity in socioeconomic deprived neighborhoods are different from those leading to obesity in other settings. These factors include like things like lack of access to fresh foods, lack of access to cardiovascular forms of exercise. Women with obesity in other settings may have a different set of exposures that do not confer a negative impact on ovarian reserve. As a whole, I think this is a cool study because we just don't have a lot of folks within reproductive medicine working on social determinants of health in our field. It's great that we're highlighting this. I really dug it and learned a new concept, the area deprivation index and neighborhood disadvantage. But I'll use Kurt's old adage, let the data wash over you. I'm not sure that this is going to change my practice, but I think it makes our field a little bit more proactive in looking at social determinants of health and how the markers that we so heavily rely on, AMH, antral follicle count, may be modulated by someone's social circumstance or where they live. Eve, you nodded your head earlier. You were the only one who was familiar with the area deprivation index and the neighborhood disadvantage score. Is this something that you're working on? 
you know, this paper came from WashU, and the first author is Alison Komarowski, who's now our second-year fellow, and Emily Youngheim, who's our division director with Jesse Walter, who is one of our faculty. So I've heard a lot about area deprivation index through our own discussions. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like there's been what I would argue an inappropriate focus on race. And I think it's not so much race as much as it is neighborhood disadvantage. And in some cities, those two factors go hand in hand. Chicago is one of those where neighborhoods do tend to be fairly segregated. But I think that it's not so much the biological difference of a Black patient versus a white patient, but the neighborhood disadvantage that may be driving these differences. And so I think it is really compelling and really interesting to look beyond race, to look at things like area deprivation, to look and to dive in deeper. What are those factors? Is it food? Is it environment? Why do we see differences, biological differences? And so I really, I think it's a fascinating study. Of course, I commend the authors. I'm very proud of our second year fellow. And um, I just, I think it's an area of growing interest. This is an appreciation of more than just race or society and other things. Um, we have to be careful. This was a debate that the editor-in-chief from, I don't remember if it was New England Journal or JAMA, got fired for saying that the differences were due to um, social aspects and not race. I'm not trying to weigh in on that issue here. I don't want to get fired, but but this does make you think that it's really tangled and we really have to pay attention to things and we can't classify them as simply as we would like. But it does bring back when I was a fellow, I learned something that stuck with me that, you know, in some underdeveloped countries, the rate of fertility was the highest. But what people didn't understand was also the rate of infertility was the highest. And this is an example of that there are situations, really, you know, big situations where populations do affect each other, so to speak, that the rates of infertility might be higher in areas where there is deprivation and poor health. And that, I guess, makes sense in some ways or another. We just have to be careful how we classify it. Kurt, can I ask you an epi question? Just curious about your take. I, I, in epidemiologic studies like this, you never really see correction for multiple comparisons. And you know, from a lot of epidemiologists like Enrique Schisterman and other that I've talked to, they'll defend that you know, as saying these studies are more exploratory. And then the basic scientists like Bill Catherino in the room during our academics will be like, no, you can't compare 50 things and find it's only in obese and overweight and, you know, living here yet you're chopping it down so much that of course something was going to pop up, even if you have a biologic reason for it. Can you just explain your thought to me on epidemiologic papers and controlling for multiple comparisons? It's all in the definitions and it should be all set out how you do it a priori. You should not have more than 20 independent variables. So you're going to find one by chance. We all know that by the p-values and things like that. But sometimes epidemiologists argue that these are not independent and what they're looking for is the best way to measure something. So they look at the question a couple different ways. And if one pops up, then they start chasing that one down as a possible lead for further study or for a finding. I, one of the other differences is epidemiologic studies like this never declare their findings definitive. Right. Um, so um, where in the basic science paper, if something comes up, they're saying C, X caused Y. So it's all in kind of how you interpret it. Yeah. To me, that last part you said is, all, from my framework of mine, has always been the best way to uh, interpret it, is how, how are you casting your findings to the world? All right, Eve, we're moving into science, reproductive science. So tell us about slow maturing oocytes. Are they okay? Can we use them? Yes, we're done. The title of this paper is The Developmental Competence of Human M1 Oocytes with Delayed Maturation in Vitro. And this is by Zhang He Moon and Bo Yu from Stanford University. And I think this is another really good paper and it adds to our literature in a meaningful way. And I just want to give a shout out to our lab director at Northwestern, Joan Riley, who is a regular listener and who I asked a few questions just in looking at how this study was done compared to how we do things in our center. So the objective of this study was to evaluate whether M1 oocytes completing maturation in the two to six hours after egg retrieval and before ICSI had similar developmental competence as the sibling M2 oocytes. So at the time of retrieval, M1 oocytes were left in culture up to six hours to assess for maturation. 
Once these M1s converted to M2s, they did ICSI, and then all M1s were discarded after six hours and no overnight culture was performed. For our learners, I think it's important to note that successful fertilization requires both nuclear and cytoplasmic maturation. Nuclear maturation is triggered with the LH surge and meiosis is completed. And this can be seen in the oocyte under direct visualization with extrusion of the polar body. Cytoplasmic maturation, however, involves relocation of the organelles, the mitochondria, the Golgi, and the ribosomes, as well as the assembly of microtubules and the release of calcium and zinc. Oocytes can have cytoplasmic immaturity despite nuclear maturity, and this can lead to worse outcomes. So because there's no visual means to ascertain cytoplasmic maturation, we use downstream outcomes like fertilization rate, blastocyst development rate, euploidy, and implantation rate to assess oocyte competence. So what the authors wanted to learn here was whether the late maturing oocytes, what they called M1 to M2, whether these had lower developmental competence and resulted in lower live birth rates after single euploid embryo transfers compared to those M2 oocytes that were deemed M2 immediately after egg retrieval. And so they conducted a side-by-side -side comparison of these M1 to M2 to M2s using sibling oocytes, oocytes from the same retrieval cohort, and then they compared fertilization rate after ICSI, blastocyst rate, and euploid rate after PGTA. And then after single blast transfer, they compared pregnancy outcomes between the two groups. And personally, I was not surprised by these findings, but I think it's really good to have them so well understood and demarcated. What they found was that the M1 to M2 oocytes did worse than their sibling M2s with regard to fertilization and then usable blastocyst rates. There were fewer euploid day five blasts derived from these eggs. The clinical outcomes from euploid blasts were similar with no differences in pregnancy rate, miscarriage rate, or live birth rate between the groups. And I want to add caution here that in total from this study, there were only 27 euploid embryos that were transferred from that M1 to M2 group compared to nearly 400 from the M2 oocytes. So I think the take-home message here as I see it is that you can use them and perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to discard oocytes. Um, and this is really where my question came in with, with our own lab and we actually do something very similar. We culture oocytes up to six hours um, before discarding. And so we don't do overnight culture to wait for M1s to go to M2s at the end of the day. We will go back see how many oocytes are now mature, and then do ICSI on those oocytes. And so I think it's really good to know that the developmental competence may be lesser, but euploid, if you are doing PGT, that the euploid pregnancy rate is the same. And so I think, again, utilization of everything that you have to try to maximize success rates for your patients. That's a nice reassuring study. I think that hopefully will change our practice, maybe not based solely by the science, but you know, the idea that we want to do what's best for our patient and finding a pragmatic way of handling it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I really liked it. And I think it's just another nugget of information. And I think it is important if we look at lower fertilization rates or when we do that regroup with a patient who may not be pregnant. I think it's important to note, like, were those oocytes mature from the get-go or were those late maturing oocytes? And then to that question of late maturing oocyte, I think that the big question that I have is what do we do to improve that? Is that a longer stimulation? Is that a longer duration from HCG to oocyte retrieval? Do you perhaps stretch that out and do 37 or 38 hours? Do you give a bigger boost of HCG? Do you do a double trigger? I think, you know, it asked a lot of questions in my mind, as well as answered a very important one. And I liked the reflection from Cotter, better late than never, but never late is best. So I think that summed it up good. And overall, interesting data that I think, I think fits with what most of us have been doing clinically. Okay, so that is the last of our original articles, but we do have a letter to the editor that was assigned, Kurt, for you to talk about. So this is a discussion over ovarian follicle size and IVF outcomes. 
Yeah, I'm glad we're discussing a letter to the editor because first I wanted to highlight that I enjoy letters to the editor. I mean, the, the discourse between authors is, is terrific. Sometimes people bring up wonderful points and it really shows that people are paying attention, which is the case in this paper. So the letter to the editor is from a group of authors from Turkey, from Istanbul, who are saying the correlations of ovarian size with IVF outcomes. And their letter to the editor is in response to Bruce Shapiro's article that we discussed on this podcast, the effect of ovarian follicle size on oocytes and embryology outcomes. Very briefly, Bruce Shapiro's article looked at a large number of people and they stratified the size of the follicles and then analyzed how many times do you get an egg from the follicle of that size and does it correlate to a good quality blastocyst and a live birth. And the, let me just give you the conclusions of the paper. Uh, punctures of follicles of um, greater than 12.5 millimeters rarely result in good quality blastocysts. But there was an increase in the chance of obtaining a blastocyst as you moved to follicles that got as large as 19, and then it seemed to plateau. So this article, as we said, kind of confirmed what we thought, that small follicles are just not as productive as larger follicles. And there was a pretty good yield up until and including large follicles at the time of IVF. So the author, first author, Nazil Albarak, comments two points as the editor. Is this data confounded? because all people with IVF were included and you didn't stratify or control for patients with DOR or PCOS, um, and also had a statistical comment and perhaps they used the wrong test. So I read this, and the first thing you do when you read a letter to the editor is, is get past words they use. Sometimes people are a little bit more stringent or aggressive at each other. Uh, just get past that and find out what the nugget is that they're asking. And this was a good question. Is it possible that the number of eggs you get from follicles differ by diagnosis? Let's take the extremes. Is it possible that someone with PCOS, you're more likely to get an egg from a small follicle than someone that has DOR? And I don't know the answer to that. So that could be a potential confounder in this analysis. But I would argue, as Bruce Shapiro does in his reply, that his study was really the first study to do this, and it's based on aggregate data. Once you have a finding, then it's up to other people to figure out the, the subtlety, again, as we talked about in this podcast, about whether it's different in different strata. I will say, though, that you can't control for DOR and PCOS. This is one of those geeky epidemiologic things is you really need to stratify because you can't put a diagnosis and model and say, well, I'm going to kind of compare where PCOS and DOR overlap. That's kind of what logistic regression does. You have to basically say those are different patients and see if you get the same findings in only those with PCOS or only those in DOR. The second point was a minor point. He was complaining about statistical analysis. And the question was whether you should be using a chi-square test or Krush-Wallace-Willis test. I'll answer the question for those that are really keeping score at home. Both of them are non-parametric tests. The chi-square generally uses discrete data, yes or no, whereas the Krush-Wallace test uses more kind of percentage data. So really the answer is it's kindly two different questions. If your answer is, did you or did you not get a follicle? Chi-square is correct. If you're saying the percentage of time I got an egg, 10% versus 20%, you should use the Cruz-Wallace-Willis. So minor distinction there. The difference is, is the unit the follicle, yes or no, or is the unit the patient percentage you got from the patient? If your data differs, this much by these different tests, you probably need to be careful as you're finding real because this is probably a um, difference without a distinction. So, Micah, what did you think of this debate? Yeah, no, I had the same thought as you did on the um, statistical comments, which I thought were fun to, to hear them go back on it. I would actually even propose a third thing in that, um, you know, Bruce was saying it's a dichotomous outcome per follicle, which is why we use chi-square. But, you know, 10 follicles from one patient are um, 10 independent events. They're dependent upon that one patient. Uh, and so you could argue that, uh, you know, chi-square needs independent data for each observation. So you can't have 10 observations from one patient. So technically, you might need some sort of more advanced modeling to sort of account for that. The caveat being, like you said, you know, if that moves your model much, then there's probably something going off because I've never had accounting for and you know, non-independence within a patient when you've done it both ways change the outcome of my p-value by very much. That's just my only thought on this statistical discussion, which I enjoyed. I like that kind of stuff as you did, I can tell. But, but let's go back to the, the main question though. I really liked the question that was asked and this is a great form letter to editor, basically saying, you, you told me about my chances of getting an egg from a follicle. Does it matter on the extremes? Does it matter 
on the diagnosis? Does it matter on the age? Does it matter on the simulation? Those are all fabulous questions that we don't know. We can't answer in the first large-scale aggregate study. Yeah. So I hope that prompts pe people to do the study in in DOR or or PCOS and see. Now you have a, a comparator and you can see whether it's different or the same. And we gave so much praise to Dr. Shapiro and his team because each one of these was a single follicle that had to be aspirated and then stop and flush. And then, you know, so that it was an incredible amount of work to do this study in the first place for the first study. So a hundred percent, you know, and now it's, he's passing on the torch, the ball to the other people to, that want to follow up with that type of <laughs> intensive intervention in the uh, retrieval room. So keep the letters that are coming. We'll continue to discuss um, original articles here. And when we come across a nice debate, we'll bring it back to you. Again, another advantage for listening to this podcast, sharing to your friends, getting new listeners, and I hope we've intrigued you this month. Great. Thank you, Kurt. As always, we only talked about a few articles. You may find several others because there's some great uh, research in here this month that will be helpful for you. As always, there are a lot of video articles coming in. There's three this month. And I just want to promote that video articles don't have to be surgical. And there's one on how one lab made male haploid cells through direct spherification. And they sort of use the video format to do animations to show you what they did in the lab to get to that technique. So I thought that was a very innovative way of using a video article to basically show us how someone was doing some science in the lab and just a snippet of that. So continue to look at those video articles on YouTube as well. Kurt, Eve, Pietro, it's wonderful seeing all of you. I'm going to be out the next three months, so I'm so excited that I got to do this with you guys. Micah, we're going to miss you for the next couple of months, but we'll think of you both in terms of your science and your personality, and we'll persevere. Micah, we're going to miss you. I hope you have a speedy recovery and that all goes well, and I know that you're going to be at home listening to the podcast. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. <laughs>